We are currently looking at the life of Jesus, if you remember, uh, as portrayed uh, by Luke in Luke's Gospel. Uh, We've been doing it for the last year or so, and we have got as far as chapter 10, which is kind of a turning point in Luke's whole uh, account. If you like, the first nine chapters uh, are answering the question, who is Jesus? The next nine chapters are all about what does it actually mean in practice to follow Jesus? What does that actually mean to be a genuine disciple of Jesus? Now, if you remember what I've seen over the last couple of weeks in the first half of chapter 10 is that really all followers of Jesus are messengers. We've all been entrusted with the gospel, we've all been entrusted with the good news about Jesus, and we've been commissioned to go. We've been sent to help other people believe the good news. Now, what we get in the next bit of chapter 10, as we're going to see today, is the other side of being a follower or a disciple of Jesus. We're not only called to be gospel messengers, uh, we're also called to be gospel neighbours. And as I hope we're going to see today, both are absolutely crucial. It's really not a case of choosing which one we're more comfortable majoring in on. They intrinsically go together, Uh, as well as being called to be messengers taking the gospel. Every single one of us in this room is also called to be good neighbors to the people around us, regardless of whether or not they believe our message. Now, at the point where we enter into the story today, uh, we're going to find Jesus embroiled in a discussion with an expert in religious law who very much wanted to test Jesus and presumably trap him. You see, Jesus was always welcoming people who disobeyed the law. And because the religious experts didn't approve of the people that Jesus mixed with most of the time, they wanted to try and discredit him. And they did that by trying to trick him into undermining God's law. If they could get him to do that, then his whole reputation would be shot and he'd be undermined. Let's pick it up in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, this religious expert is asking Jesus what he needs to do in order to be accepted by God. And because of the people that Jesus tended to mix with, he expects Jesus to say something like, well, it it doesn't really matter how you live, God accepts everyone. But Jesus doesn't walk into the trap. Instead, he he turns it back on the religious experts and asks him what the law says. Verse 26, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it. There are two ways of answering the question. The law expert could have got the scrolls of the law out and read all 700 or so of the rules to answer the question, or he could give a summary answer. Jesus here is after the shorter version. 
He's asking what the law basically requires. And so the religious expert gives the distilled down version. Verse 27, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you'll live. Let's try and unpack this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. What does that mean? Well, think about it this way. When you're at a loose end, you have nothing to do. I mean, you dream of being in that kind of situation. Just, just use your imagination. You're at a loose end. You have absolutely nothing to do. Uh, nothing to look at. No reception on your mobile phone. No Wi-Fi no one to talk to, where does your mind naturally wander? Where does it instinctively linger? Is it God? You find your mind wandering to the attributes of God, the character of God, the personality of God, the Word of God, God's will for your life. Whenever your mind is free, you just instinctively find yourself thinking of God. Now, uh, judging by the blank expressions, that's probably not what happens. In which case, where does it go? Because that might be a clue as to where your heart is. The, the thing of greatest importance to you. So, the first challenge we get here is to love God so much that he ends up dominating our thoughts. Whatever our circumstances, whatever situation we're facing, whatever pressure we're under, we are content because the bottom line is we have what we most want. We have God, and He's enough for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. That's challenging. That's only half of it, because we're also to love our neighbor as ourselves. What does that mean? I think it means meeting the needs of our neighbor with all the strength, all the passion, all the energy, all the speed, all the joy, all the urgency with which we go about meeting our own personal needs. It's like, be happy for them when their needs are met. Be as happy for them in such a situation as when yours are. When you try and break down all of the laws, what they're really after is that. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, spot on. Do that and you're saved. And I think this is brilliant because on the one hand Jesus is saying here the law outlines a way of living that is right. I mean I think we'd probably all agree in this room that that is how we should try and live. It is only right that we should view God like that and it's very hard to disagree that we should treat our neighbor like that. 
But Jesus is also saying that although the law is a way of life, ultimately it's not the way to life. You should live that way, but ultimately you'll never be saved that way. Because as hard as we try, we'll always fall short. Which is kind of what the religious expert here was feeling. Because as we read on, we see that he immediately starts trying to justify himself. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see what's going on? He's trying to whittle the thing right down so it's reasonable and doable. Because the whole premise for his life is that God will accept me only if I'm good enough. And what the Lord demands of me is impossible to achieve unless it's redefined in such a way as to make it easier and more attainable for me. But Jesus isn't willing to go there. He's clear, this is how we should live, but if that's how we think we inherit eternal life, then we're crazy. But the religious expert doesn't like this. Any more than many of us don't like this. You see, a lot of the time, our default position is to think we can, or at least we should, earn our way to God. So, when we think we're doing well, we think, we believe, we assume we are closer to God. And the times when we slip up, when we feel we're not doing so well, we feel as though God could never love us. We feel like there is suddenly a distance between us and God. And the only way around all of this is to try and justify our behavior. And so we make excuses to explain why our wrong behavior is justified. Or we do what the religious leader does here and try and redefine what's right so that we do make the grade. It's like he's asking Jesus, what's the minimum standard that will get me in? What's the minimum standard that God wants, that God requires of my life? At which point, Jesus launches into one of the best-known stories in the whole New Testament, the parable of the Good Samaritan. As we read this familiar story, please don't forget the question that this story is the answer to. The question is, what's the absolute bare minimum standard that God looks for when it comes to me loving my neighbor? That's the question. Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 30. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. 
Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Jesus asked, Now which one of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yeah. Now go and do the same. Four things we learn here about gospel neighboring. Number one is mandate. Number two is magnitude. Number three, it's motivation. Number four, a few things about its method, how to actually do it. Let's start with the mandate. The question is, What's the absolute bare minimum standard that God looks for when it comes to loving my neighbor? And Jesus says, it's to meet the needs of the people around you, even people who aren't like you, people who you don't necessarily like, people who don't believe what you believe. Because Samaritans and Jews were from different cultures. Samaritans and Jews had their own religions, And each thought the other one was blasphemous. And Jesus is saying, I want you to look out there at the people you ordinarily despise, and I want you to meet their needs with such sacrificial love, at such cost to yourself, that it will absolutely astonish everyone who sees it. That's our mandate. We're to meet the needs of the people around us, whether or not they share our beliefs, whether or not they are like us or we like them, with such sacrifice at such cost to ourselves that people will need to hear the gospel just to make any kind of sense of our behavior, of our actions. This is the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Feeding, sheltering, protecting the weak, liberating the oppressed. This is the essence of what it means to love my neighbor. This is the essence of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Over in Matthew 25, Jesus describes how on the last day, God will separate the sheep from the goats. It's like there'll be members of the flock who look very much like sheep, but they're not the real deal. And God will have to separate out those who claim to be believers from those who genuinely know Him. Just have a listen to what Jesus has to say about how to tell the difference. Matthew 25, verse 42. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they'll reply, Lord, 
When we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he'll answer, I'll tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Now that's pretty shocking, isn't it? Jesus is effectively saying, to mix up the metaphors here, by their fruit you will know them. I mean, here's a tree in the summer full of fruit, there's another tree in the summer with no fruit at all. Which one's dead? The one without fruit. Which one's alive? The one with fruit. Does the fruit give the tree life? No, that the fruit tells you it's a life. And Jesus says, here's a difference between someone who says they believe and someone who has actually experienced my supernatural life. A life poured out in compassion and service, especially to the poor, is an inevitable sign that you have actually personally experienced my salvation. Might take a while to come through, might come sooner, it might come later, but it will always come. It doesn't give you life, but it shows that you are alive. So that's the mandate of gospel neighbouring. Now be honest, do you find yourself doing what the religious expert did? Even now, are you trying to put some limits on what this actually means for you because you're beginning to feel ever so slightly uncomfortable and a bit guilty. Well, Jesus refuses to let us off the hook here. He goes on to show us three ways that we're often tempted to limit the magnitude of what it means to be a gospel neighbor, and he won't let us do it. First way, I think we often try and limit what Jesus is calling us to do here is by limiting the who. Let's face it, it's natural to want to give and help and aid and assist people who are like you and who you like and who like you. But Jesus is saying, watch out, you mustn't limit it like that. And so he tells this story about a Jew and a Samaritan, two racial, two cultural groups who were bitter enemies. And the hero of the story reaches right across an enormous racial barrier in order to help. He's making the point that your neighbor is absolutely anybody in need. It's Jesus' way of saying Don't you dare try to limit this to a certain type or group of person. Don't you dare try to limit this to anyone. We we mustn't limit the who. I think the second way we try to limit this is we tend to limit the when. I mean, we don't mind helping people when they are a victim of circumstances outside their control. But when, for whatever reason, we feel it's their fault, we can be a little more reluctant. It's like we're we're far more likely to offer help to people when we feel that in some way they are worthy or they deserve it. And the story that Jesus tells here, the Samaritan 
would have absolutely believed that the Jew deserved everything that went wrong in his life, everything that had happened to him. He might not have done anything wrong, but he was guilty by association. Just because he was a Jew would have been enough for the Samaritan to to deduce he was to be judged. And yet the Samaritan reaches down to him. Jesus isn't permitting us the option of limiting the when. And then the third way that I think we can be tempted to limit this is the how much. We have a tendency, don't we, to say, well, if I was doing well, or at least doing better than I am right now, then maybe, but I'm hardly making ends meet myself, or I barely have any time for myself. I, I, I can't afford to help people like this. Jesus deliberately puts this whole story on a stretch of road that everyone hearing the story would have known about. He didn't just say that the man was attacked as he walked along the road. No, he put him on a particularly dangerous stretch of road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So many people got attacked, robbed, and killed there that it was called the Pass of Blood. Now, why do you think the priest and the Levite see this man lying by the side of the road and hurry along? Well, if you see someone who has been attacked and they're nearly dead, but not quite dead yet, what does that mean? It means the attack has only recently happened. The attackers are probably still nearby. To stop could be very dangerous. It could be fatal. And so, when the Samaritan stops, he's risking everything. And Jesus is saying, I want this kind of radical, costly, risk-taking, sacrificial attitude to characterize your neighboring of others. In Galatians 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul instructs us to carry each other's burdens, and he goes on to say that if we do that, we will then fulfill the law of Christ. Now, just think about that. If we're never expected to carry each other's burdens, except when it doesn't really burden us, then how are we supposed to ever carry each other's burdens? When we say that we can't afford the time or the money or the energy to give to help others, I think what we're really saying is we can't afford to do it without it hurting us in some way. Jesus says, let me tell you the magnitude of what I'm calling my followers, my disciples to do. You're to help people who ordinarily you would hate the sight of. You're to help people who you think have perhaps brought this on themselves. And you're to help them to such an extent that some of their burden falls onto you. So that to some extent, you end up experiencing some of their difficulty. That's what it means to be a gospel neighbor. 
Now you might be thinking, well, how do we get anybody to live like that? That brings us to the motivation. Now a guy called Tim Keller is absolutely brilliant on this in his book, Generous Justice. It's a great book to get hold of and read uh, around this whole subject. He says, really, there are only two possible ways to get people to live like this. And Jesus, in this story, shows us both of them. One's inadequate, the other is all-adequate. One is completely insufficient, the other is all-sufficient. First way, you can try and get people, motivate people to live like this, is through morality. Secular version goes a bit like this. If you're a decent person, then you will be concerned for the poor. It's the idea, the rationale behind comic relief and uh, other events like that. If you're a decent person, you will be concerned for the poor. The religious version says that we must give to the poor because that's what God commands. Both basically motivate you with guilt. You have so much. They have so little. Doesn't that make you feel bad? Then give to ease your conscience. Now, Jesus puts two characters into the parable who are extremely moral, a priest and a Levite. The whole irony here is that their job was to give to the poor. But Jesus is showing us that people who are expected to give out of duty will only do so up until the point where sacrifice is involved. Morality isn't enough to produce the radical, sacrificial, costly gospel neighboring that Jesus demands here. Morality will prick your conscience, it will make you feel guilty, it will make you feel bad about how you're living, it will perhaps motivate you to try and do your bit, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change your life. In fact, let me ask you a quick question. Is there anybody here feeling guilty about their lack of involvement, their lack of generosity, their lack of concern for people around them? Anyone here feeling guilty? If there are, stop. Because it won't take you where Jesus wants you to go. Jesus isn't trying to make the religious expert guilty. He isn't trying to highlight how bad he is for not caring for the poor. Here's what Jesus says is the only way to get the power to live in the way he wants us to live. Key to the parable is where the religious expert has been placed by Jesus in this story. If Jesus had told the story like this, a man just like you was riding along the road one day, and in the road he saw a Samaritan. The Samaritan had been beaten up and left to die. But the man, just like you, came to the Samaritan's aid and nursed his wounds and paid for accommodation until he had made a full recovery. Now I want you to go and do likewise. What if that's how it was? A man like you 
overcame his prejudice to help the Samaritan, the loser, the blasphemer, the oppressor. He overcame all the racial, cultural, class barriers and helped him. Now you go and do likewise. How do you think the religious expert would have responded? I reckon he would have laughed at Jesus. I mean, are you kidding me? No self-respecting Jew would ever do anything like that. I mean, come on, I'd have trampled on him with my horse and put him out of his misery just to make sure he really was dead. Jesus, this story doesn't motivate me at all. But Jesus doesn't tell it like that. Jesus puts the Jew into the road and the hated, the despised Samaritan as the rescuer. And here's the question he's asking. What if you were in the road? What if you were lying there dying? What if you were bleeding to death and your only hope was an act of free grace from someone who doesn't owe you anything. In fact, owes you the complete opposite. What if that was the situation? Would you want grace? You see, if Jesus asked the religious expert to reach through all racial and cultural prejudices to help someone that in his heart he actually despised, he'd have been merely giving him another rule, another law to follow, something else he ought to do. And if he did it, it would have been out of compliance, out of duty, rather than flowing from a changed heart. But Jesus here isn't giving us a do it, he's giving us a dynamic He's saying, what if you were shockingly saved by the grace of someone who owed you nothing but rejection? It's only if that happened to you that you would get up and start looking at everyone else differently. Only then would you be a radical neighbor. Only then would you look at the people you previously looked down on and despised because they were the wrong race, the wrong color, the wrong background, the wrong class. And suddenly you'd find yourself looking at them differently. It's like I was saved by someone who I'd rejected and resisted. I find myself in the place where I have been saved by radical grace. And that cuts right through the moralism and the sense of duty and the guilt and the condemnation and provides a compelling, life-changing motivation. Jesus is saying, you will never be a neighbor until you get a neighbor. In other words, you'll never be a radical neighbor until you are radically neighbored. You will never be able to have this kind of ministry to the people around you until you are the recipient of this kind of sacrificial, costly, radical grace. Do you notice how Jesus has turned this right around? 
Started with the question, who is my neighbour? Flips it right round to the question of, well, who has been a neighbour to you? Listen, what I'm trying to help you see today isn't yet another rule or law to live by. It's way more powerful than that. I want you to grasp the gospel in such a way that it utterly transforms you. The gospel says, in our heart of hearts, we all start off as self-justifiers, every one of us. But whatever you try and justify yourself with, if it's not God, it becomes a master that will enslave you, that will beat you up, that will fill you with fear and discouragement. You'll end up effectively lying in the road, dying spiritually. No hope, no peace, no joy. But the gospel says that Jesus came into the world. He if you like, journey down our road. And he owed us nothing. We owed him everything. I mean, he created everything. We chose to ignore him and live our way. And we've been trying to be our own masters all of our lives. But when he came to our place in the road, he had compassion on us. When Jesus saw us, he knew that to stop wasn't just to risk his life, he knew it would cost his life. For Jesus to come down to us and save us meant him losing his life. But he did it. And if you see him as your good Samaritan, as your radical neighbor, it changes you forever. It really must. You see, the love that Jesus is demanding here can never merely be the response to a command or a law or a requirement. It can only come as a free response to receiving free grace. And only when you see the true neighbor, Jesus Christ, and what he has freely done for you, will you be released to become a true neighbor to others? So, we'll just try and wrap this up by helping you work through what to do as a result of this. Here's the method. Two things we're taught in this passage about how to go about being a gospel neighbor. Number one, learn how to see. Learn how to see. The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan all saw the man lying in the road. But the priest and the Levite didn't think about him and they avoided contact with him. In other words, they didn't look twice. They looked once and they averted their gaze. They looked away. But the Samaritan looked at him and felt his pain. In the parable, it says he was filled with compassion. You go away, you, you do a word study on compassion in the Gospels. You'll see more than perhaps anything else, that's what triggered 
the miracles of Jesus. He looked out and had compassion on them. His heart went out to them. He felt their pain and loved them. Time after time after time in the Gospels, you see Jesus' heart of compassion. How do you go about being a gospel neighbour in a city like this one with so much need all around us? It starts by seeing the need, thinking about the people around you, having contact with them and allowing it to stir compassion in you and not merely looking away. Number one, learn how to see. Number two, learn how to connect the two themes of Luke chapter 10, the message and the neighbouring. You see, a whole bunch of churches which major on what Jesus says in the first half of this chapter when he sends his disciples out to fearlessly proclaim the good news. A whole bunch of other churches which major on the second half of the chapter and focus on social action. Jesus never presents it as an either-or. In his mind, they are utterly inseparable. If we're to be true followers of Jesus, I'd suggest we need to be both courageous messengers and radical neighbours. Both are important. Here at Church Central, we want to do both well. Now, I don't know. Maybe where you're at right now, you, you, you can't get beyond feeling guilty about all of this. If that's the case, I want to urge you to do what Jesus wants you to do with the guilt. Until you are crushed by the sight of the mercy God requires of you, you will not be humble enough to receive the mercy God offers you. And He offers it to you in the greatest neighbour of all, Jesus Christ. When you see what He did at the cost of His life to save you, when that penetrates your heart, when you experience it, when you're living in the good of it, then, and only then, will you be able to go and do likewise.